0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss.
1: When you save on auto insurance for driving
0: safe with USAA Safe Pilot, you'll feel like a big deal, even in a traffic jam. Save up to thirty percent with USAA Safe Pilot. Restrictions apply.
1: I didn't really expect that Paul would go before Sean. And she just said, uh, Dad's dead. And do you know what I said? The first thing that I said was, oh, yeah, I knew it. I'm just really glad he didn't die of drugs or, or suicide. I'm, I'm glad he kind of died a dignified death, really. It was just really lovely for me that we were able to sit there and laugh about some of the things that have been hugely traumatising at the time. I always felt like there were two balls. There was the one that was on the same side as me, and then there was the one that was not on the same side as me. He ended up, he had my name tattooed on his wedding finger, eventually, because he said no, he'll never be able to sell that. I just lived in a perpetual state of anxiety and stress and worry. And it was hell. It really was hell because I wanted him to be well. And the thing that kept me going, the thing that kept me with him was because I honestly, truly believed that he did want to get clean. Very, very hurt and wounded that his brother became this monster in his world. Paul can be, could be quite a lazy person, you know, like, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it next week. But with this, he was on it. He was the orchestrator of the band from the beginning. And as the band became successful, his power and control of the band diminished. I find a lot of comfort in it. I, I'm just massively grateful that we that we did it and that we finished it.
0: Angela Smith, journalist, TV and film producer, podcaster, lovely person, my mate in Los Angeles. <laughs> First of all, uh, welcome. How are you oh, doing?
1: Thank you. I'm really good. It's so good to see you, and you're looking fabulous. I know. You look younger, <laughs> you look younger every time to see you.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna st- I'm gonna change the tone here completely and start with a really hard question. Okay. July the fifteenth, twenty twenty two. Yeah. How did you hear hear of Paul Ryder, the Happy Monday, and you know your ex husband, the father of your two children? How mm-hmm. did you hear of his death? How did that day proceed?
1: Um, okay, so I uh, during the day before that, I was working on putting together a sample reel for the podcast because we were presenting it to somebody. So I'd been enmeshed in it all day. So it was very much kind of on my mind. Um, and I woke up for a wee in the middle of the night. <laughs> I woke up at about six, five, 5.30 in the morning and uh, my older son was actually in England visiting and I had a million messages from, I had missed calls from my stepdaughter, from my stepson, from uh, two other people as well. And I was like, ah, something's wrong. So I called, it was the middle of the night, I was half asleep. So I called my stepdaughter back and uh, she said, uh I've got some really horrible news. And I thought, it's either, I didn't have a missed call from my son. I just had missed calls from my stepson and stepdaughter. And I thought, it's either my son or it's Paul. And it took her ages to tell me what it was, because she was so shocked and devastated. Um, It took her a long time. She said, I've got some really horrible news. And then it it took a i don't know it sat it felt like 5 minutes but it was probably just 30 seconds or something and she just said uh dad's dead and do you know what i said the first thing that i said was oh yeah i knew it and i, and I didn't know it but it was like i don't know i felt like there'd been um a re- there was a real imperative on both our parts to get this podcast finished it was his complete life story it was him telling basically like a massive confessional it, it was about it was obviously was talking about the rock and roll antics and and all the kind of music stuff but it was also very personal about all the ways that he'd messed up with his addiction and stuff and there was a massive we've both felt this massive pressure to get it finished before he went to England um when we'd been working on it for about six months he'd come round to my house every Sunday and we do a bit more and a bit more and a bit more and um Both of us felt this huge pressure to get it done before he went to England. And part of me thinks that maybe our subconscious minds knew that something was going to happen because the first thing that I said to Amelia was, I knew it. Like, obviously, I didn't know it, but that was the first thing that came out of my mouth.
0: Yeah. Do you you think he knew that he was not just (laughs) ill, but he knew that his days were numbered, I suppose, to put it bluntly?
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, he was not a healthy man. He smoked like a trooper, loved his smoking, um, had tried to give up a few times. He had the beginning of COPD, but that didn't stop. You know, he, he tried to stop a few times, but never really fully succeeded. And he was on diabetes medication. He once had been diagnosed with celiac disease, but decided to ignore that fact and still ate gluten. I mean, he was not a healthy guy and never exercised, always parked as close to where he was driving as possible he had quite a big belly on him at, at the time which was kind of abnormally swollen like he, he didn't present as a healthy person so it wasn't like one of the he wasn't like a massive cyclist or you know the uh, someone who trains a lot so it wasn't a massive surprise in that sense but um do I think that he knew no I don't think he did I mean he he'd been he told me that he'd had he'd had a physical um a few two or three months before and he'd had been given a clean bill of health he'd had cancer screening and this and that and been given a clean bill of health so when the coroner said he had heart disease that's what he died of it seemed very odd to me because in my understanding you don't die of heart disease you live with heart disease and you manage heart disease. Um, I don't feel like the, the coroner actually did a proper job with with identifying the real cause of death. The paramedics um, said that they thought it was a clot because he, he'd had a really bad headache for two days and lost hearing uh, on and off and was kind of disorientated. And uh, apparently there was some sort of swelling on his head. So that points to a clot, but that was never pointed up by the coroner. Um, I'm just really glad he didn't die of drugs or, or suicide. I'm, I'm glad he kind of died a dignified death, really. Uh, there was an article in the, I was fuming, actually. There was an article in the Daily Mail yesterday about it. And um, the Daily Mail just always twists the facts. Like The the opening paragraph was something like, Paul Ryder uh, revealed that Donovan helped him go in, into rehab just days before he, in a podcast podcast recorded just days before he died well it was the podcast that was recorded days before he died the rehab was 30 years before but the daily mail made out oh so he must have died from drugs you know and he didn't die from drugs so i'm 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 actually glad that the the coroner's cause of death was not something tabloid foddery you know
0: when when my mum died and just uh, I think it was like four days after a funeral, I started writing a book uh-huh. um, about her life and my relationship with her. It never got published, but it was something that I did. And I sat in a cafe and someone sat opposite me and I was just streaming with tears uh-huh. and writing this book. It was obviously very cathartic. Yeah. You said that there was a the day before you were looking through those tapes and uh, uh-huh. making a sort of promo um mm-hmm. after he died what was the fir- when was the first time that you went back to those tapes and looked through and how difficult was it to actually then look at that long interview
1: i actually found it quite comforting i i well i went straight to england um so i was very involved with all of that and i think i'd I didn't go back to them for a while. I would say maybe two or three months, not because I was trying to avoid them. And and I was trying to show, when I was in England, I was trying to show people clips of, of, of it. And a lot of the family were like, they didn't didn't feel ready to see any of it. Whereas I actually found quite a lot of comfort from it. And I still do. I kind of still don't really believe that he's gone because I see him every day like I'm in the thick of editing still like the last six months I've been completely enmeshed with it so I kind of don't really believe that he's dead really Um, but a lot of the family like I know some of his kids one of his children watches it every week and and is involved in it helps with the social media Chico but the other children one's watched a couple but they're not ready really and his mum watches it a few days after it comes out and she enjoys it but then she cries. Whereas I'm actually okay with it. I mean I, I, I don't know, I find a lot of comfort in it. I, I'm just massively grateful that we that we did it and that we finished it. Um yeah, I mean, I mean everyone should do it really. <laughs>
0: I mean, you said it's, it's well, I've watched nine today episodes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, no, I've had a, I've had a, Paul, Paul and Anne, <laughs> hey, it's been fantastic, actually. <laughs> uh, and what you said was right. It's, there's, it's nuanced and it has moments in it where it really surprises, his honesty really surprises you. Yeah. Your relationship with your ex-husband, for me, as someone on the outside, I didn't know him and I didn't know you as a couple. And so from someone on the outside, that relationship, it's still there in some way as well. You feel the connection, um, but also you feel a little bit of the distance from you. And so first of all, I, I just want to get into your relationship with him. Mm -hmm. And you were at MTV when you met him and you met him on a shoot in Iceland. Can you tell me the first moment you laid eyes on him, as it were, and what your impressions were?
1: Okay, well, um, we met them at the airport. There was me and there was my friend Laura and the crew. And um, there was a massive entourage. There were about 50, of no, 40 of them, crew and band and... And I hadn't really done my homework properly. And I didn't know who was in the band and who was in the crew. And I knew that I had to get a shot of the band. I needed an establishing shot of the band arriving in Iceland. So a shot of them walking out of the airport through the snow, I thought would be great. But I didn't know who the band were. And I didn't want to reveal the fact to this massive amount of people that I didn't, because I know, I knew at least that if they knew that I didn't know, they would have sent some of the crew to pretend they were the band to just mess me up. I knew that that would, at least I knew that much. So um, I just, I think what I did in the end was just ask the manager and said, oh, can you get the band uh, to come out and kept my fingers crossed that he sent the right people. So obviously that was when I first set eyes on Paul, but I didn't notice him particularly. But then later that night, we we all were staying in the same hotel. And I remember, I remember the pit, the, the scene really well. There, were, there was a reception area and there was some stairs and he was standing at the top of these stairs and he was staring at me. He was like giving me the, the eye and I was like, oh, he's looking at me. And that was the first time I really noticed him. Yeah.
0: What did so, you know about him as a person before? Did you know anything not, at all?
1: Nothing. No. Oh, well, I'd read... I'd read a feature in either The Melody Maker or The Enemy, which is what sparked me to ask the bosses at MTV if we could go and do this piece in Iceland. I'd read about them and I knew enough to know that they were kind of reprobates and kind of scallies and naughty boys. Um, But I, I, I kind of thought that was probably a bit of hype and it probably wasn't really true. And they were from, turned out they were from the town like three miles from where I grew up. So I felt quite a connection to them, and quite I was keen to champion them really because they were from my neck of the woods, and and they were they were sort of my cl- not my class, but they were they were sort of my people, I guess. Maybe I was a bit posher than them, perhaps. I don't know, but I didn't know much. I certainly didn't know that you know the, the stuff that I discovered later.
0: <laughs> I mean, at that time, um, <laughs> I think he was married, wasn't he? At that time, in any no. case, was no, no, he was.
1: He wasn't married. He he was with a woman who he had two children with. And he told me that he was separated from the mother of his one child. So he told me a bit of the truth, but mass- <laughs> massively left out the majority of the truth. <laughs>
0: That's fantastic. So, yeah. OK, so on this sort of, you know, glance, this look at the hotel, um, Yeah. Where? How did that that proceed? Because in the in the podcast, he actually goes to your mother's house, which you had given as your address because you yeah. were living in London, to yeah. give you a couple of tickets to a gig and backstage, yeah, passes. So tell me about that.
1: Okay, so so the the day that I saw him staring at me was the, I think the day of the gig, the day of the show. We were filming the show, so myself and Laura who was my PA from MTV, we were backstage before the show and Paul was being massively attentive, like drinks and and are you okay ladies? And you know, very, very, you know, looking after us. And then after the show, we were hanging out. I think we went to a club or something and we were debating the way back to the hotel. There was me, Sean, Paul and Laura. And I remember me and Paul, Went one route, and Sean and Laura went another route, and we kind of. Were
0: There's another podcast
1: there. <laughs> get back to the hotel faster, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so we kind of, we, we sort of had a bit of a snog that night, um, and then on the pl- we went to the Blue Lagoon the following day, filming them, and then I think we left that afternoon. Can't remember, but I remember sitting next to him on the plane going home, um. And I gave him my mum's address because it was three miles from where, I don't know why I gave him my mum's address, but he asked for it. And then he showed up with tickets for the show, which was the following Saturday. And then I went up to the show with a friend, fully expecting to see him, be with him. And I never saw him.
0: Yeah, one thing that I sort of learned from MTV, and there were a couple of pop stars I, you know, I fancied it wasn't ever reciprocated. (laughs) But um, because they're so, mm, let's say, a bit mollycoddled by the, the record companies, they're really protected by the record companies, everything is done for them, that um, I think they are often somewhat emotionally needed. Were you worried about having a relationship with someone who was a pop star?
1: Ah. Uh... Well, at the time they hadn't really broken through. It was before they were properly famous and it never really got off the ground. I mean, so when he got back, it, I went to this g gig and never saw him. And then about two months later, he called me when I was at MTV and said, oh, we're recording at this studio in Chiswick. Do you want to come down? So I went to the studio in Chiswick where they were recording. We went out that night, we stay, I stayed with him that night and then I never saw him. Then three months later, I opened a copy of the Face magazine and there were his wedding pictures. He was getting married to the woman who was the mother of his two kids and there was a baby in arms and a little boy. And I was like, oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, and and I didn't hear from him for nine, I didn't speak to him for nine more years after that. So, okay. sorry, I didn't answer your question. Was I worried about, well, it, I wasn't really in a position to have a relationship with a pop star at that point, but nine years later, no, I so thought it was quite cool, actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I was more concerned, I suppose, about dealing with the excesses that would come with that in terms of drugs and alcohol. But I wasn't even aware that he had drug issues, but he definitely drank a lot. And that was a bit of a red flag, which I completely ignored, obviously. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, in terms of got having a relationship with a pop star, it's an exciting world, isn't it? You know, you get to go to shows and you travel the world. And yeah, I mean, I'd rather do that than have a relationship with a heating engineer, you know?
0: Oh, I don't know. You can get your... Actually, fixed.
1: Maybe not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it'd probably be a bit more stable actually um but no in terms of i mean i I'm, I'm attracted to that life and that lifestyle and and you know i love music and i love that whole world i love musicians i'm very attracted to musicians personally i just feel like artists have a certain mindset that that i find more interesting than a than a conventional mindset not good relationship material i've since learned
0: <laughs> okay what, what were what were you've sort of mentioned some of his qualities like he was attentive and he was very kind um yeah. what were the overriding qualities that made you like him not just initially but that nine years later right. what, what okay
1: those? um he was very keen on me he worked really ha- like i didn't have to work hard at all to he decided that he wanted me to be his go- nine years later he decided he wanted me to be his girlfriend and he was just very romantic and bought me gifts and not that not that he was trying to buy me. but He was just very sweet and very, very loving and very affectionate and all those things that as a woman, you want a man who's wooing you to, to do and be. Um, so that, yeah, he kind of really worked on on getting me. And at the at that point, nine years later, when we finally did get together, my ch- I was thirty-five or six, and I was really wanting to have babies, and I was worrying because I'd broken up with someone who I'd been with for six years. I'd been single for a while, and the first night we got together after the nine years, he said, "Oh, I want to marry you and have babies with you." And because he said, I want to have babies with you, it's like, it was a done deal, right? Somebody wants to have babies with me. Okay, check.
0: Start the marriage. Yeah, Just have and then, babies. And then, <laughs> so that was
1: the first night we got back together after nine years. And then the next day I had to go to Thailand for work. And I remember speaking to a friend of mine there and saying, do you think I should get pregnant straight away? Or do you think I should wait for a bit? <laughs> and I, I was pregnant seven months later. But yeah, he definitely the magic word was the baby word. The fact that I found a man who actively wants to have a baby with me. Yeah.
0: Right. This is, it. <laughs> it's
1: it's
0: true. this is great. I, can't, I know you as such a sort of forthright, honest person. And I, and I wasn't sure whether you were going to be the same here, and you are. I love this. So um, let's get back to the podcast because. Okay. Um, How did it come that he wanted to record the podcast or record the interviews, I should say, series of interviews in the first place?
1: All right. So (laughs) I did this. um, I don't know if I've told you about this actually. I did a dating podcast. Have I told you about this?
0: Yeah, you did in LA. (laughs) Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. So I did a dating podcast, which was all about my online dating adventures as a 50 something year old divorcee Um, and it was it's a fun romp through online dating adventures as you can imagine and because he gets mentioned a couple of times and because I recreated our dramatic breakup car chase (laughs) in this podcast, I kind of wanted to play it to him because I just, we, would get, we were on really good terms at that point. A, I wanted his seal of approval. And B, I just wanted him to hear it because I knew he'd be interested. So I played in the first episode of this podcast and he was like, it's fucking brilliant, Angela. It's just brilliant.
0: Obviously I know the story because you've told me about this uh, car chase End to the relationship, <laughs> but I think you've got to tell everyone.
1: <laughs> okay, <laughs> so uh, the 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 victim of a cheating husband's friend, best friend. So if if you if you're a wife and your husband's cheating, if you're a husband and your wife's cheating, your best friend is to find my iPhone app. <laughs> so. He'd, I'd already caught him twice in sort of, you know, one one with texts, one with just being in a place that he said he wasn't. And then I caught him with a, this woman in his car. So I knew that was, something was going on. So on this particular day, he said he was in one place. And I looked at my, he didn't know that I had his Apple ID and password uh, and looked at the Find My iPhone app and he was at a different place. So I was on my way home from a friend's house and I thought, I'm just going to go to where he's where find my iPhone says he is. (laughs) So, and he he was moving. He was actually in Malibu on the Pacific coast highway. And so I was coming up from Santa Monica and um, I caught up with him and he was in a gas station near cross Creek opposite the ocean and I don't know what I was planning to do, but anyway, so I, I saw him in the car in this gas station and in the passenger seat was the woman that he was having the affair with. And it, he saw me and they both took off down the Pacific Coast Highway. So I took off and chased them. <laughs> he, was, he was in his Range Rover. I was in a battered old PT cruiser. And it was a Saturday evening and the sun was setting over the ocean. It was like, a, the it was the perfect, backdrop for a marriage breakup car chase and literally you know when you know when adrenaline just takes you over and and you're not thinking about anything but the the task at hand which is chasing this guy so I was it was like I was in another world so eventually I don't know why he did this but he pulled in so I pulled in behind him And I got out of my car and there was like trucks coming rushing by. It was really busy. And I got out of my car, went to his driver's window. And why he didn't just take off and carry on, I don't know. But he wound his window down. And I just said, make a choice, her or me. And he looked at me and he said, I just want to be on my own. And I said, "Okay, I'll help you pack. And then I looked at her and this is what I love. So... I don't know where this came from, but a a dropsy from above into my head. I looked at the woman, I said to her, the next time you wanna have sex with my husband in the back of our car, don't forget to take your skimpy yellow knickers with you. And she looked at me and said, I don't wear yellow knickers. And I'd completely made that up to make her think that he was cheating with somebody else. I don't know where it came from, <laughs> and she looked horrified. <laughs> As a result of the conversation over this dating podcast, um, I think it was me because I knew that he always wanted to write a book, and he almost he, he was about to do a deal with with somebody, and that fell through a couple of years before. And I just felt it would never happen unless I helped him make it happen. So I don't know whether it was him or me who, who was like, well, why don't we do a podcast and then you can talk. I think it was me. You can talk your book to me and then we'll transcribe the conversations and add some bits to it. And there's your book. And that way you don't have to sit down and actually physically type stuff. Um, so he said, yeah, let's do it and and was very, very committed to do it from the get go. Like Paul can be, could be quite a lazy person, you know, like, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. Oh, I'll do it next week. But with this, he was on it and it really took it out of him. Like he do- he could only record for maybe an hour at a time. And he lived two and a half hours drive from where I live. So he'd drive over for two and a half hours just to record one hour and then drive back for two and a half hours. Or sometimes he would stay overnight in a hotel with his girlfriend nearby. Um, And he was religious about showing up whenever we uh, arranged to do it.
0: As I said, I've listened to uh, nine episodes today. uh, And from those episodes, what I get is, first of all, is this overriding need that he has to right wrongs that yeah. have been, you know, said or in the press or from Sean or in the books yeah. or whatever about him That's and and about the band. That's one side. But then there's this deeper thing about self-worth. And it really came through for me that he was looking to have confirmation of value in the world in some way. Do you know what I mean? Do you feel that he went into that? Or in what way do you feel he went into that? And in what way did that change as it progressed? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
1: We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. under the shadow of the adulation of Sean by everybody. And it, it's clear that he was the orchestrator of the band from the beginning. And as the band became successful, his power and control of the band diminished because all of the spotlight came onto Sean and everybody assumed Sean was the musical director of the band, which was absolute garbage. Um So I think he was... He was utterly crestfallen. I think that that he never got the recognition. Like he 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 invented the band really. He he put it together. He came up with the name. He was the one cracking the whip in the early days. But then in in later years, he was regarded as oh just the replaceable bass player, you know. And in his status within that was was very diminished. Partly because of the way Sean behave towards all of the musicians not really giving them any kind of respect or wanting to even even very recently wanting to cut them out of any future recordings like wanted other people to write the music but put those records out as happy monday's records which obviously they were up in arms about and said absolutely not so i think he was he was very very hurt and wounded by that um, very, very hurt and wounded that his brother became this monster in his world. Um, and he was just always really confused by it because it was his brother and he loved him, but yet he was doing all these, saying all these really hurtful things all the time. And I feel like I honestly think that that is the main reason for his mental illness and his or the main trigger at least. I think that the the spectre of Sean and the way Sean's behaved. Has been the reason for a lot of his mental health issues. You know, I can't blame Sean, but I I do think it was it was triggered.
0: In terms of him and Sean, you or we hear uh, from his mum and uh, and from him about his childhood and mm-hmm. the closest that they had. Um, mm-hmm. But we also gather from him. Um, that he still wanted to do one more album as a, as the as yeah. Happy Mondays, and he still wanted in some way to reconnect with Sean, mm-hmm. although yeah. he saw him as a bit of an ogre. Yeah. So
1: absolutely.
0: there was yeah. this sort of dichotomy. This is sort a of strange yeah. mixture of yeah. things. So how do you view that?
1: Um, that it's a strange dichotomy, absolutely, as you say. I mean, I think he just found it very difficult to accept how Sean as a personality had evolved, given how they were when they were younger. Um, and I think he always wanted to rediscover the the nice part of Sean and, and reconnect and, and have that relationship again. Um, and that tortured him, I think. It tormented him throughout his life. Um, and he never gave up on wanting to reconnect with Sean even though he he was incensed by him on many, many, many occasions was incensed by things that he said to the press and things that he, that he heard. And I mean, it, I could go on and on and on about that, but um yeah, he it, it, it couldn't, it, it's not like a friend where a friend pisses you off and you, you decide you don't wanna be friends with that person anymore. So you cut them out of your life. He couldn't do that with Sean. There was still this bond, and it was a blood bond, I guess. Um, he wasn't able to just cut him out and move on. There was always this thread of connection. But, you,
0: but okay, but you say it was a blood bond, and and as a, yeah. as a sort of reason. But you can detach from your yeah. family. You can say yeah. they they aren't doing me any good, so I'm going to detach.
1: Yeah. Which and... he did do. He did do. He went for years without speaking to Sean. But then the band reformed, so he had to work with him. So he's in his orbit. So it's kind of like picking a scab, isn't it? Um,
0: And also what was very painful was hearing how he had to work with him in that last 10 years and how that, you know, Sean would turn up, be on stage. He wouldn't see him before. He wouldn't see him afterwards. The band would be playing on and Sean would be gone. mm -hmm. And uh, his contribution was... uh, very small uh and 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 i found that really really fascinating because it's in a way that's that contact that you it's like going home for christmas and hating your fucking family but you go home because you feel guilty or something do you know what i (laughs) mean it felt that's what it brought up in me this feeling of like i can't really get out of this so i'm gonna have to go through it and in a way that's the feeling that i got from him was like i want this band so I can't get out of it, I've got to go with it. And Sean's in it, he's the front person, can't get mm-hmm. rid of Sean. So in a way it had this feeling of like, I'm trapped.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Was he yeah, trapped? Definitely.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think it, it, it tormented him. And uh, I suppose it's like breaking up with somebody in a romantic relationship and still seeing them in your orbit. Like it's much easier to get over somebody if you have nothing to do with them and you block them and you never hear from them again you move on faster but if you work with them or you see them every day it niggles it niggles at you and i think that's what was going on with him plus of course they had a mother in common uh, you know like it, it, the, he, and he had a really great relationship with his mother so um it's very it would, it would have been very difficult for him to do 100 percent detachment
0: when you save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot, you'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA SafePilot. Restrictions apply. Another word that comes up quite a lot is guilt. That he's, he feels some guilt for other things in his life because you know he well maybe you can tell me how he got into drugs first of all because he um, you know he started off lightly in a way and yeah. then and then there were there's this turning point can you tell me about that
1: okay yeah of course um so he started off smoking weed drinking doing what all lads do at that age and who grew up in that area of manchester um and I think there was coke around because it was a band, they'd show up for a gig and there'd be drugs laid on. Like it was, it, they were everywhere. Um, part of the deals often are that the band gets supplied with a certain amount of drugs. I don't know. Um, what Paul said, and he's always said is that the the very first time he took heroin was when he found out that his, well, the, the woman he married, that I saw the picture of in the Face magazine, he married her, but after a year, he found out she was cheating on him and he got a private detective to follow her. And of course the private detective said, yes, she's cheating. So at this point, Sean was already using heroin and Paul knew that. Paul said, he drove to Sean's house and said, give me some of that heroin. I need to take the pain away. And that he said that was his first go of having heroin. And and with him, he was able to dabble in it for a A year or two and kind of manages his using of it before he became full-blown addicted. Gary the drummer, however, says that he thinks that it's very possible that really the breakup of the marriage was just an excuse and that really he was trying to medicate the pain of seeing his band crumble. The band was imploding, he was losing his power with the band the band was becoming something different. It was, And Gary thinks that his heroin use really was because when the band were clearly about to split up and Factory lost their deal, and then Sean blew the three million pound deal that was going to be on the te- that was on the table from one of the record companies that he couldn't handle that. He had a nervous breakdown. And, and the, the build up to that was the reason why Paul became heavily into heroin. I don't think it was really. Maybe the trigger, the initial trigger to pick up the first time was the wife cheating on him. But actually, the bigger issue was his band that was more important to him, really, than anything at that point. Um, It it
0: was his identity, wasn't it? This is what you're really getting at. Because, you know, he was the the bass player and the founding member. And it sounds like Paul Ryder wasn't his identity. It was being the bass player and the founding member of Happy Mondays.
1: He said a few times that they called him Mundyhead, like the the Beatles called Paul McCartney Beetlehead because Paul McCartney was the one cracking the whip with everybody and annoying everybody by being very disciplined about everything and Paul was their equivalent of that. So it was like his creation, he was in charge of, of, of them at the beginning and then that power just kind of got eroded and then when Paul got into heroin, Gary said, I knew at that point that that was the end of the band because with Paul on heroin, not being in that, not being able to have that control and be compos he knew that that was the end of the band. Um, and sure enough, that's what happened. I mean, initially at least.
0: He told a story which really sort of broke my heart, which is with his, uh, I think she was four at the time, Amelia yeah. from Alison, uh, yeah. his former wife. And
1: yeah, they
0: were in the car, and yeah. she was his lookout. What was happening? What did he tell you?
1: So um, yeah, so he'd go off, school, uh, go off to get heroin. He was living with his parents. With his, he had custody of his two kids, and he'd moved in with his parents, Derek and Linda, who were helping him to raise the two. Well, they were really the the parent figures, really, his mum and dad, because Paul was in a mess. And uh, he'd go out to buy heroin. And often he would take Amelia with him. And often I think that was like as a shield so that his mum and dad wouldn't think he was going to get heroin. No, he's taking Amelia out. So he would drive to his heroin dealer, get the heroin and then park up in some car park and smoke it while Amelia was in the car. And she was to look at, she had to look for, and I I actually interviewed Amelia about this last week. Um, I'm not sure even if we're going to use her interview in the show because she I, I don't know I don't know whether she's going to be in it or not we're going to talk about it again but she talked about it in oh gripping detail she basically said I loved those days because I got to spend time with my dad I loved being in the car with him it was like a little adventure and he'd get his foot she'd say are we going to play with your foil?" because he'd smoke it for off tinfoil are we going to play the tinfoil game? And then uh, she really enjoyed being the lookout and looking for the police. And she said, I still look back on those memories with fondness because it was fun to me as a four-year-old and I loved my dad and I loved having that one-on-one time with him. And also I know his, his older son has said something very similar too like they look because he was very vacant a lot of the time and not really emotionally available for them that they were the moments when he was available and so they and and they weren't it wasn't like it was hitting them or or physically harming them that they could feel you know and and she said she was very surprised that everybody finds it really shocking because to her it was just normal and that's just what they did and it was a happy time for her
0: how was it for you to be on the other side of his addiction when you were married?
1: Absolute torture. Horror. It, it was it was like living in a nightmare. It we had nine years in Manchester from when the when I first had my first child. We were in Manchester for nine years, and that whole nine year period, he was in and out of using. He went in. I'm guessing seven rehabs, seven different rehabs. And he'd come back and you'd be all thinking, thinking yeah, he's gonna do it this time and he'd be good for a month. And then he'd come home and you'd see that, like it was so clear to me when he'd used, like it, it was it was like, it might've well been carrying a sign, you know, like it was so clear to me. If anyone who lives with a heroin addict or has a friend who's a heroin addict would know, they you can just tell, it's so obvious when somebody's used. So I just lived in a perpetual state of anxiety and stress and worry. And it was hell, it really was hell because I wanted him to be well. And the thing that kept me going, the thing that kept me with him was because I honestly truly believed that he did want to get clean. He just somehow couldn't manage to do it. And that's why we ended up moving to LA, really. The truth. I mean, we say, oh yeah, work opportunities. But really the real reason we moved to LA was to get Paul out of Manchester where he was unable to stay clean. He felt he would have a better chance of staying clean in L.A. because people didn't know him as a happy Monday and he, he had so many drug connections in Manchester. So that's the main reason that we moved to L.A. And he was right. It was easier for him to stay clean in L.A. But, yeah, those, those times were horrible. I mean, I could he one day he, uh, for example... When we got engaged, we went to Iceland. We went back to Iceland where we'd met and we got engagement rings in Iceland and we had each other's names engraved in them, which is the Icelandic tr- tr- tradition. He had the man's one, I had the woman's one. And on Mother's Day one day, he came back and he showed me his finger and it didn't have the ring on anymore. He said, I've got something to tell you. I've just swapped my engagement ring for a rock of crack. I mean, I- yeah, and, and he, he ended up, he had my name tattooed on his wedding finger eventually because he said no he'll never be able to sell that. Yeah, but then when we broke up, he, he covered up my name with a black band and put the name of his girlfriend over the top of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he don't forget he's got ten, eight fingers and two thumbs, so he could can... He could go yeah. a long way with everything, really. Yeah. Just use a different <laughs> finger. Um, so, your youngest, Sonny, you tell a story about.
1: My oldest. It's
0: Sonny's your oldest, my... sorry. Yeah, yeah then it got muddled up. Okay, so yeah. you tell a story about Sonny in, in relation, yeah. and it sort of connects to the Amelia yeah.
1: story.
0: Yeah, it
1: does. Yeah, do you want me to tell you that story? Yeah. So, is it a big arm, um, gig? So, okay. Previously, uh, a couple of times, I I. I I don't know how I found out but I found out where he was getting his drugs from and it was this couple who lived in this shitty street in a shitty house in a shitty street in a shitty part of Manchester um and they were drug dealers uh they were you know nice people but like but they were drug dealers and uh, that's where he used to go and I have horrible memories of going down there with a friend and dragging him out and taking him home and and take that so i knew who is what his drug dealers looked like um and um he had a big arm gig his solo project big arm and i was at the show and i looked across the room and caught eyes with the female drug dealer and she came bounding over to me and she said How are you doing? She said, Oh, your baby's lovely. (laughs) Which basically told at the time I had a four-month-old baby, which obviously told me that he'd taken our four-month-old baby to go and get drugs from the drug house. And from that moment onwards, um, I had to hire a child mind because I was working, so we had a child, my friend, in fact, Laura's mum, Betty. Um, came and was our childminder and then eventually his mum retired and came to work for us too so we, I always had somebody looking after the kids other than Paul even though Paul was home all day because I just couldn't risk that he would do that again that was bad that's,
0: that's really difficult. it's really tough it's really hard well, another side which I think is also very difficult and it and it connects to what it what his relationship uh, to Alison as well because he gets a private detective to follow mm. Alison to prove her infidelity, yeah. yet he is not faithful either. Right. And right. his from—I don't think we've got to this yet on the podcast, but <laughs> what's to come—and you tease it—is his infidelity to you. Me, yeah. So, how did that come about, and how did you feel that you? or did you really ever feel that you knew him? Because, you know, it's, it's from the moment you met him, it's like, he's, he's got a girlfriend and one child when he had two so mm-hmm. we So said earlier, um, he's not really being honest about drugs, but then no, no one who's an addict yeah. is ever really honest. Yeah. And I presume then he's not even being honest about his sex life.
1: Right. I, I always felt like there were two Pauls. There was the one that was on the same side as me. And then there was the one that was not on the same side as me. And I was forever fighting for him to be the good Paul, not the bad Paul. Um, And I do believe in that good, uh, even now, now he's gone and we broke up. I do still believe that there was a good person at his core. And it was the drugs that, made him lie and cheat and and do all those horrible things and if you were a if he had been able to get rid of that addiction and the addictive personality then he would have been a thoroughly good person so i it's it wasn't black and white it wasn't like oh he was a thoroughly evil person that lied and cheated his way through our whole relationship it wasn't like that at all there were many many good qualities about him that addiction was just the one thing that just spoiled, that, that tarnished everything. All the good things were tarnished by that. Like we'd go on holiday, but the holiday would be ruined because he'd be trying to get tablets from the doctor all the time, or that it kind of underpinned and overshadowed all the good bits. But there were a lot of good bits too. Uh, so, did I ever feel that I really knew him? Yeah, I do. I do, I do feel that I knew him. I feel that I understood the behaviour that drove him to do the stuff that was bad and damaging and hurtful. I believe I understood that. Um, yeah, it's just, it's complicated, isn't it?
0: Well, one thing I really love about the podcast and what I really got from it today was you just really like him. You can't not like him. It's, do you know what I mean? There's something so charming and open and, um, I don't really know what the word is, but it's some sort of sweetness about him. It's really funny. It's almost childlike as well.
1: And that's very genuine. Like, he was very genuinely being himself in that. There was no putting on a front for the press. There was no, like, turning it up for the media. That is how he is, how he was in that. That whole. And I ran a lot of... I tried to keep as much of when he thought the cameras weren't running in the podcast as possible if I if I'd had my time over again I would have run more of that I kept the cameras going more behind the scenes because you get the you, you can hear him talking when he doesn't think the cameras are on and it's the same you know um and I think it's really important to, to be in this world of fake personas and Instagram influencer type fakeness I think it's really important to be real and I think that's where you get the magic isn't it that's where you really put magic out of people when they're being real
0: absolutely and I think that's why the podcast works so well because those moments really add some sort of different flavor to it and you really understand him at those moments and you also feel his fragility at those times which is really interesting when you went in to do the interviews was there a burning question in your head which was like i'm gonna get a bit of revenge now (laughs) there's a there's a question in my head that i always wanted to ask him that i hadn't really asked him up till now and if i do it in the interview that would be brilliant was there something in your head that you thought (laughs) i have to ask him that i haven't asked him another time
1: Uh, well the the main thing that i was trying to do was Okay, I was always worried that Sean was going to die first and I didn't want Paul to be left behind not having said everything that he wanted to say to Sean before he died. I wanted Paul because I knew that there was this thing and and unresolved issues. And I wanted Paul to just to be ready for if Sean passed away, that he wouldn't be really tormented by that. So Part in the, I think in episode one you, you, you hear me say how do you think he'd feel if got a phone call saying you were dead but I also said the opposite how would you feel if you got a call saying Sean was dead because I wanted him to go there and feel what that would be like and then he could go and put into place anything that would torment him if that happened so that was on my agenda for sure I mean I didn't necessarily consciously plan that but I know that that was something that I felt was important that came out in episode 1 um and in it came out that he was okay with it you know he 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 didn't have anything that he, that he wanted to say that would have been left unsaid and and he would have been upset so that didn't really work from that perspective but I didn't really expect that Paul would go before Sean I'm really grateful that we'd we had a year of fighting after we broke up but I just decided life was, and also he never, he didn't have any money. It wasn't like he was a wealthy, you know, people think that if you're in a famous band that you've obviously got loads of money. He didn't have, he had very little money, hardly any money. Um, So it wasn't worth fighting him in divorce courts for child support. So we just had a really amicable, like, Oh, we'll just divorce. And then give me, give me money for the kids when you've got some, like, let's just do it between us and, that bought us so much peace. That bought us and saved us loads of money in legal bills that we didn't have. So we had a very amicable divorce and um I if it'd been with the woman that he was cheating, when we broke up it was because he was cheating with a particular woman. If it'd still been with her, I don't think I would have been able to be his friend. She this woman was not not a pleasant woman. But the fact that they'd broken up and he'd moved on and was with somebody completely different made it a lot easier for us to have a cordial relationship. So no, there wasn't really anything that I, I... I don't think there was that I had up my sleeve that I really wanted to find out or know. There were a lot of things that I discovered that I didn't know about through the conversation. Lots of things. And I say, the it, like, time, oh, I never knew that, you know. We never really talked in depth about his history with the band you know there's a lot of things that just came out that i was really surprised
0: by yeah and also one of the most surprising elements of the podcast is you discover new two new tv stars <laughs> it's so fantastic paul's mum and is it oh, Gaz- And mum I, mean, I, <laughs> I mean
1: did you
0: I know. did you know they were like a double act they're just yes. so brilliant
1: I did, I did, because I've known Sandra as long as I've known Linda, really, because they've been friends for years. And I was always thinking, these two need their own show. And about three or four years ago, I said to them, can I just record you in the kitchen, just talking? Because I thought, we need to develop a show with them. And I, I just had the camp just my phone, and recorded them. And they were brilliant, hilarious. And I just thought, need to do something with them. And I never got around to really doing anything with them. And then when the poll thing came up, it was like, well, we need to interview Linda. And then she said, Oh, well, Sandra's coming round. I was like, Yes, let's get Sandra and her together and just let the cameras roll. And and then it was so good. I thought, well, what we need to do is look at the there's 20 episodes, there's gonna be 20 episodes, look at the theme of each episode and get them talking on that theme so that I can drop them in every single episode. And then we get a we just get a bit of light relief and some heart and humor. That sort of northern, it. I just didn't want it to be too doom and gloom and heavy, and and they just give it that sprinkle of fun. And also, you know, a lot of the musos want to hear a lot of the the fa- you know, factory going under and what happened and who was, re- and and I didn't want it to get boring, so I pepper them in a lot. And I, you know, the kind of the long sort of muso bits get peppered with linda and sandra to kind of keep the mood high and keep the thing moving along and i think it works really well they're amazing. oh they're going on there they're so excited they've got an, they're being interviewed by bbc radio merseyside tomorrow <laughs> they're so excited so we're going to film them being interviewed <laughs> and put that in the podcast so that'll be good
0: <laughs> so it hasn't come up but of course i know i know the story and 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 i was around while you were actually um um well, campaigning in a way and also making a documentary about the benefits of cannabis. And you've sort of mentioned it in the podcast up till now that uh, cannabis that uh, Paul took uh, at the beginning when he was younger and cannabis then had a positive impact on both your lives because of Chico. Can you just tell me shortly about that story and also about your documentary?
1: Yes, yes. Um, so basically, our youngest son Chico, when he was 10, was diagnosed with a, a rare and deadly form of cancer called rhabdomyosarcoma. Um, and he had a, bit, a pretty grim prognosis. It wasn't, you know, a slam dunk that he it, it was going to recover, it was re- a horrible, harsh chemo regimen radiation. He was in a wheelchair, he lost a third of his body weight, lost all his hair couldn't eat. He was in a really bad way. So um about four or five months into his treatment, I just thought, well, this is not going well. The cancer the, the, the treatment was killing the cancer, but it was also seemingly killing him too. Um, and also this cancer had a, a, a very high recurrence rate as well. Um, and then somebody in fact I'll tell you who it was it was it was Sean's ex girlfriend, Donovan's daughter in fact, Oriel Um, who had been in a relationship with Sean many moons before, sent me a message on Facebook saying you need to watch a documentary called Run from the Cure, which is about a guy called Rick Simpson, who had discovered the curative properties of cannabis oil on tumour cells. Um, And basically, I then started doing research and discovered that there's a massive amount of evidence to suggest that THC kills cancer I mean I'm very simplifying it hugely here but I found a study that had been done in Zurich um, whereby THC had killed my son's type of cancer cells in the lab in a test tube but it was enough for me to think well I want to try that for him because I didn't want to ever look back and have regrets that we didn't try something so I found a source of cannabis oil and we gave him huge doses, huge doses of cannabis oil when he was 11 at this point. And I honestly, honestly, to this day, believed it saved his life. I really do. And and we were in a documentary called Weed the People, which was on Netflix for a few years. They followed our journey. And it's inspired probably thousands of people. I've had thousands of messages from people saying that our experience in that film is has inspired other people to take oil and they're now well and so the mushroom effect of this has been incredible so we we are working on our own documentary as well I've followed I've been filming Chico over the years he's now 21 and he's at um University of Colorado Pueblo and he's studying cannabis chemistry and biology which is really cool isn't it (laughs) so uh yeah that's another amazing story so we we're i still got one this morning in fact we still get people coming to us asking for help with that and i'm no expert by any means but i honestly believe that natural medicine in in conjunction with conventional medicine is the way to go i just think if why wouldn't you throw all the ammunition at cancer that you have at your disposal and just because it's not sanctioned by western medicine particularly doesn't mean to say it doesn't work um It doesn't work all of the time and and it's very dose dependent and strain dependent. It's complicated and not enough research has been done to actually determine how to treat it with the best efficacy. But there was some research recently done in Madrid, for example, that showed that THC potentiated the effects of chemotherapy. So potentially in the future, chemo doses could be lowered and still have the same effect and therefore reducing the amount of toxicity. Um, it's just there's such a massive stigma attached to this plant. And, and the pharmaceutical industry, of course, doesn't want it anywhere near anything that could threaten their profits from the drugs that they sell. Um, that it's it's not moved. We're 10 years on now, and I was hoping that by now things would have progressed hugely and that it would have been adopted into the mainstream. Uh, More readily, and that's still not the case. And it still bugs me. And in places like England, it's still illegal virtually. I mean, it's very, very difficult to get legally in England. And there are kids who are dying of cancer whose parents are giving them oil, and they risk the kids being taken off them and being in jail for 14 years when they're just trying to save the lives of their kids. So that's a huge issue close to our hearts, obviously.
0: Going back to the podcast and the interviews, as a final question, because you had an amicable divorce, you were still in contact. Um, I just wondered what those, and we know what those interviews gave Paul, they gave him in in a sense, probably a bit of a peace of mind. He got his story out there and he was able to say what he wanted to say. What do you feel you really got out of those conversations with Uh. him?
1: I guess I got closure. It was, it was nice to hear him owning all the crap that he'd done. <laughs> you know, like it was, it was good. It's like, no, it wasn't going mad. It wasn't, it wasn't me. Like it, that, that really did happen. Um, but it was just really lovely for me that we were able to sit there and laugh about some of the things that have been hugely traumatizing at the time. We laughed about our dramatic breakup car chase down the Pacific Coast Highway. You know, we, we were able... We'd come so far out of that traumatic period that we were good with each other and we were able to laugh together and acknowledge that we, neither of us have any regrets, really. I mean, I don't have... Even though it's it, it it was hugely traumatic at times, I don't wish that I'd never done it. I don't wish that we'd never got together. I don't wish that anything really had been different. I don't know, am I being honest there? Uh, <laughs> maybe there's a couple of things I would have <laughs> done differently, but largely speaking, I'm just really grateful that I've gone through all of that because I've got the benefit of that experience now. And I just think it's it's a massive gift to be able to have come out of that and we were friends and we were able to produce this amazing work really together that I think will go on to touch lives of other people too. I don't know, I'm just really grateful for the trajectory. And then we, I literally died 12 days after we finished. I mean, you can't make this shit up, can you <laughs> really? Like, <laughs> incredible. Yeah, so I'm just very grateful that, that we did it and that I played in that. I'm very grateful actually, that I decided to play in that dating podcast which was because I just felt like, oh, you know, he's mentioned in it. And I was kind of trying to do the right thing. And if I hadn't done that, probably none of this would have happened. So I'm just very grateful that at that point I did the right thing and played it to him. And then this triggered all of this.
0: Well, it's a wonderful podcast. It's incredible. I mean, it really has everything in it. It's, in, you know, and, and I haven't gone into the music because I felt like the 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 main thing was you and him and your connection to him Mm -hmm. and the the podcast itself so I really wanted to talk about that and it really made me get to know him a little bit without having known him before and really like him so in that way I'm really appreciative so uh Angela Smith thank you so much and I look forward to listening to I have then if I've done nine I've got 11 to go haven't I yeah
1: I'm still working on number 11. I've got another nine to another 10 to cut still. It's like, oh, (laughs) it's taken over my life. I really appreciate you uh, giving me the time and talking to me. You're amazing. What a brilliant interviewer you are.
0: Up there is an interview I recommend. Down there is where you can find all the podcast interviews. And here is where you can connect. Right now at Safeway, earn four times rewards points when you shop for participating items with Safeway for you. Shop for items like Frigo Crumbled Blue Cheese, Kellogg's Club Crackers, Coca-Cola, All-Liquid Detergent, or Uts Chips, and earn four times rewards points with Safeway for you. Offer expires January 4th. Plus, get select holiday essentials like gift wraps, bags, holiday decor, lights, and more. Buy one, get one 50% off. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com or head in store for full offer details.